Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Good morning, everybody. You guys can grab a seat. I'm so glad you're here. I made a sarcastic joke in the first gathering about how they braved the snowstorm because it hadn't snowed yet. And I was thinking it wasn't gonna snow, but you guys are the real ones. Way to go, way to be uh, the faithful ones. Uh, It's really good to be with you for real and uh, to get to open up the scriptures today, especially today as we are kicking off our new teaching series, which is all about preparing our hearts and orienting our lives around the arrival of Jesus because we're in the season of Advent. Advent, a time when the global church collectively celebrates and anticipates the coming of Christ. Like Tim mentioned, we kind of officially kicked this off on Friday though with our Advent uh, celebration. How many of you guys were there? It was so fun. It was such a sweet turnout. Yeah, we have a picture. Look at that. The Hallmark vibes were pretty strong. It was like pretty cozy in there, minus the like forced love story and creepy Santa Claus like manipulating the whole story. It was really fun. So thanks for coming. It was a sweet time to kick it off. But today, new teaching series, Advent. If you're not familiar with this word Advent, it really simply just means coming. And it has a bit of a double meaning, kind of like a twin focus, because it's the word that's used to describe both the first coming of Christ and his second coming. Advent is both celebration and anticipation. Celebration of the hope, joy, peace, and love that was secured for us in his first coming and its anticipation. Anticipation of his second coming where that hope, love, peace, and joy will finally come into all of its fullness and we'll get to experience it with every fiber of our being. It's anticipation that rests in the assurance of God's ability to make good on his promise to renew and restore all things. And today we find ourselves positioned between his first coming and his second coming. And as a community, we want to spend the next four weeks preparing our hearts to enter into, to participate in the gifts that this season has to offer us. And this year at AJC, we wanna do that uh, by, by entering into the larger story that Advent invites us to find ourselves in. And we're gonna do that by looking at the lives of those who had a front row seat to Jesus's birth story his birth story, and we're gonna unpack their experience and the way that they showed up to that season of waiting so that we can learn how we, as we find ourselves also in a season of waiting, can show up fully, hearts, lives ready and prepared, postured in such a way to enter in. And so this morning, we're gonna start by looking at the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Jesus's aunt and uncle. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to Luke chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. A lovely person is gonna bring you one. And if you don't have one at home, that's yours to keep. Uh, But why don't we go ahead and stand together. We're gonna read this section of scripture. And I'm gonna warn you, it's a lot of verses. So don't fall asleep, feel free to like, 
you know, stretch it out. Don't lock your legs. That's my encouragement. But we're going to stand as a way to just acknowledge uh, the authority that scripture has in our life. And I want you guys to get a full scope of what this story is all about. And then we're going to break it down and zoom in on some specific parts. But Luke chapter one, picking up in verse five. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiha. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Richard will correct me later if I'm not. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He'll bring many back uh, to the people of Israel, to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's his way of saying she's really old too. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, as we dig into your word today, I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us, that we would be open, that our hearts would be receptive and we would lean in just a bit more today to what you're inviting us into. Would you prepare us now? Prepare this church, us as your people, for all that this season invites us into. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen. What did they see that I so often miss? That's the question I kept finding myself returning to as I read their story over and over again. 
As they set out to start their life together, I'm sure they dreamed about starting a family, especially in an age where modern day birth control definitely didn't exist. Each month was full of potential and the possibility of getting pregnant. Maybe this month, maybe this month is the month. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, the waiting. Oh my gosh, the waiting only increased the expectation and anticipation of what it would be like for her. What it would be like for her to see her husband become a father, to hold in his strong but gentle grip their baby. Of what it would be like for him, for him to watch his wife's body change and grow as her womb grew pregnant with life. I'm sure, I'm sure they daydreamed about and excitedly debated about whether their child would have his eyes or her nose, of what their baby's first kick would feel like, what its first cry would sound like. It can be exciting while you're waiting, even fun. But when months turn into years and years turn into decades, the delay in that dream becoming a reality can so quickly drown out any sense of hope, joy, or belief in, in God's provision, much less his goodness. This is the reality of where our longings lead us, the waiting. The very nature of longing implies the not yet, the hope of something that has yet to happen. And so our longings, they lead us into waiting. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Waiting for something like this, like a child for this long often leads a wake of heartache, even bitterness and cynicism but not with this couple. Rather than the hard, long road of waiting hardening their hearts, it, it tends to do the opposite for them. The couple appears to be even more tender and open before God. So what, what did they see? What did they see that I, we, so often miss? When the God that they prayed to for a miracle was silent for so long, why did they continue to serve him? Why did they continue to follow him so faithfully? How did they persevere in the midst of hope deferred? Luke sets the story in the time of Herod, king of Judea. So before he zooms in on Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal story, he clues us into this larger story that's taking place. Herod's reign, it represents political dominance and social oppression. Just a bit later in the story, we see the cruelty of his dictatorship unleashed on the lives of innocent boys living in Bethlehem. Times were hard. They were hard on so many levels. Herod's leadership only exacerbated God's people's deep sense of longing and desperation for the promised Messiah to come and deliver them, to finally rule with justice and peace, just as the prophets had promised. God's people at this point, that they're hanging on for dear life to his last words that were spoken about 400 years ago through the prophet Malachi. Malachi, in Malachi 4, he says this, surely the day is coming, 
It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic. They're gonna frolic like well-fed calves. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Sound familiar? The hearts of the children to their parents or else I'll come and I'll strike the land with total destruction. Surely the day is coming, he writes where they're gonna frolic as the scriptures say. And that would have been really easy to believe initially, but it's been 400 years. It's a long time for God to go quiet. And God's people are looking way less like a group of people frolicking and more, more so looking like a people scratching their heads, wondering if it was all just too good to be true. In the midst of God's people waiting, waiting for his return, Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth who are also waiting. They, they were this kind of power couple, a pair that people would look at and be like, they are goals. Luke's detail about their shared background of both coming from a rich heritage of faith and a long light of priests signals to us that this couple's union was especially blessed, especially blessed. And yet they were barren. They were old and barren. And being barren in their culture was pretty much a disaster, both economically and socially. Economically, not having a child most likely meant that you would die in poverty because there'd be no one there to take care of you. And, and socially, man, a woman's infertility was often interpreted as a judgment for sin, that surely she had done something to deserve this. This social shame in and of itself was often too much for them to bear. But Luke, he makes this point abundantly clear that both Elizabeth and Zechariah were blameless. In other words, their infertility was not God's judgment on their life. They were righteous before God obeying his words. They weren't perfect, but their hearts and their lives remained open and responsive to his word in the midst of all the tears, of all the tears that I'm confident they cried over what could have been and all the questions I'm sure they asked about why, why not us? Why not now, God? Elise Fitzpatrick writes this, if you're willing to sin, to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place and you're functioning like an adulterer. But for Zechariah and Elizabeth, not even their deepest desire for a child could distract them from remaining devoted to God. In the midst of their confusion and unanswered questions, Elizabeth and Zechariah refused Listen to this, they refused to let their deficit define the moment. They refused to let it determine the degree to which they would give their lives over to God in daily devotion to Him. 
Luke describes the couple in such a way that you can almost hear Abraham and Sarah from the way distant past whispering, hey, remember us? We were old and barren too. Do you remember what God did? Do you remember what he did through us? They can't see it yet, but the story is on the brink of something big, something new, that the story's brimming with potential. And as we read it, it should cause us to lean in with wonder. What will God do this time? Zechariah's name even, and this is no coincidence, Zechariah's name even means Yahweh has remembered again. And Luke, He's weaving these two stories together of waiting. Israel's waiting for the Messiah and Zechariah and Elizabeth's waiting for a son. He weaves them together in such a way that highlights the need for divine intervention in both stories. Luke, he's highlighting these two stories as, as a way of saying, hey, this is the impossible. God's people and this couple are both in impossible circumstances and it's gonna take a move of God to break in if we're gonna see any change. Zechariah was a priest and the role of a priest was to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. So think of the temple and the priests who work in the temple kind of like gateways that link together heaven and earth. It was a big job. And on this day, it started off like any other day. But as you can imagine, like go with me, be in the context just for a moment. It's not the most exciting time to be a priest. God, again, he's been silent for 400 years and his people are angsty for his return. This week, Zechariah's division reported for duty at the temple, but what started off as an ordinary day on the job quickly turned extraordinary when Zechariah finds out that he's been chosen to burn the incense. I know, it's exciting. I, I'm sure you're all familiar with the weightiness and the significance of, that, uh, of what that means, but if you're not, I'll fill you in. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like someone who plays uh, on a AAA team and they get a call from the major leagues and, and they say, it's time for you to get in the game. You're pitching. It's as close as they're ever gonna get to the big show. That's what is happening here. The altar of incense was located just on the other side of the Holy of Holies, the place where the locus of God's glory and presence dwelt. You can kind of see it here. Look up at that red box. Evan's amazing and he's gonna zoom in on it in just a minute so you can see it even more clearly. But the only thing, if you can notice, the only thing standing between Zechariah at the altar of incense and the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt was a veil. Zechariah was as close to the presence of God as you could get as a priest. It was second only to the high priest who could enter into the holy of holies, but only once a year on the day of atonement. This is a big deal. The altar of incense's proximity to the presence of God made it the most honorable task a priest could do. And they only got to do it one time in their whole career. So this is a big moment for Zechariah. The task of burning the incense, it was associated with prayer. This is why in Psalm 141.2, David, he prayed, may my prayer be set before you like incense, 
Or in Revelation 5, in John's vision of heaven, he sees the elders around the throne and points out how they were holding golden bowls full of incense, of which he says were the prayers of God's people. Now, Zechariah entered into the holy place to burn the incense and offer up prayers to God, the congregation is simultaneously gathering to, to pray just outside the temple. Don't miss this, don't miss this. Prayer is often the prelude to encountering God's presence. Prayer in this moment and in so many other moments throughout the scripture is the prelude to encountering God's presence. In the moment of prayer, God breaks the silence. That's a word for some of you in this room today. If it's the only thing you take away, you find yourself in a season of waiting. It's an invitation to simultaneously find yourself in a posture of prayer. Prayer is the prelude to encountering his presence. Through the angel Gabriel, God carries Malachi's prophecy into Zechariah's present reality, and he is scared to death. Gabriel tells him, hey, there's nothing to be afraid of because of this, because God's heard your prayer. But what prayer exactly is Gabriel referring to? It makes you wonder. Was Zechariah using his one shot at being as close to God's presence as he could get to ask for a son? I mean, I wouldn't blame him if I was him. If I had one shot to get as close to God's presence, I'm probably gonna ask for the thing that I want the most. So was he praying about that or, or was he going about business per usual and interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel for God to come back and deliver his people like he promised? And in that moment of faithfulness, a moment uh, representative of what Eugene Peterson describes as a long obedience in the same direction. Was it in that moment that God just shows up and shocks him with an answer to a prayer that he had prayed long ago, maybe even had given up praying? Luke doesn't tell us what exactly Zechariah was praying for, but maybe that's on purpose. One commentator points out how perhaps this is Luke's way of linking these two storylines together to show us how God's acting on behalf of Elizabeth and Zechariah is God acting on behalf of Israel. In this moment, we get to sort of see behind the curtain and watch as God's cosmic plan of redemption enters into the life of a common couple who showed up who showed up to a long season of waiting by keeping their eyes fixed on Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who time and time again had made the impossible possible, the God who was known for bringing life into barren wombs and splitting oceans into highways and ordering food from heaven to fall when God's people were hungry in the desert. N.T. Wright says, God regularly works through ordinary people. Some of you need to hear that again. God regularly works through ordinary people, just like you, just like me, doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith and devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. Ready, open, available in all of the ordinary days, that is how they waited. 
Sometimes you and I, we can get so caught up, so fixated on wanting to see God move in the miraculous that, that we lose sight of how essential our daily devotion to Him in the ordinary, mundane, seemingly insignificant moments of life really are. The grit of their faith in the waiting is so compelling. It's so compelling to me. Even though they couldn't see in front of them, they were able to see with a different set of eyes. And that seeing enabled and empowered them to serve the God of their ancestors. With lives open before him, fighting for fidelity in the mundane days of waiting, God comes and he fills them with fresh joy and hope in their old age. God brings the new out of the old again. Finding out that he was gonna have a son, I'm sure that would have been enough. But the angel says, wait, there is so much more. This isn't just any son. This is John the Baptist. They were gonna give birth to a boy who was filled with the spirit even before he was born. Their son would be set apart. Their son would be the one that Malachi spoke of the Messiah's forerunner who with the same spirit and power of Elijah would turn the hearts of parents to their children and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's incredible news. But for Zechariah, it's just a little bit too good to be true. It's not so much that he doesn't believe what Gabriel is saying, it's just that he wants some assurance. After all, he's way past his prime. It'd be like your grandparents finding out that they're having a baby. You're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. It's a lot to take in. So, so Zechariah is looking for some assurances. He's like, hey, can I give this promise in writing? Or maybe he had in mind like a ceremony of dead animals cut open that God was gonna walk through, something like Abraham got, just something so that he would know. But the angel clapped back and assured him that he was Gabriel. After all, he was sent by God who he had just been with in the present moment to tell him this good news. And the only assurance that Zechariah was left with was his own silence. Until this promise comes to pass, Zechariah can't talk. But the angel leaves it a bit on a high note and lets him know that all that he's just spoken to Zechariah will indeed come to pass at its appointed time. How long? Don't know. At its appointed time, it's an invitation to hold on to hope, to continue to remain faithful in the waiting. So Zechariah is left speechless, literally, which is problematic for lots of reasons, but the immediate one being that as the priest offering incense, you were also the one that was scheduled to wrap up the service. And you did that by going down to the temple stairs and blessing the people. But Zechariah can't talk. And things were taking really long in, in the holy place. And God's people are there and they're waiting and they're wondering what's taking so long. And finally, Zechariah comes bursting through, unable to give the blessing, opts more for like an impromptu game of charades where he's trying to communicate what had just happened. And it went pretty well because they were able to at least catch that he had just experienced some sort of divine encounter vision from God. And as soon as he wraps up, his time of service in the temple, he goes home 
And the story says that Elizabeth becomes pregnant just like God said she would. The spotlight now shifts onto Elizabeth who in her old age begins to experience the answer to prayers over decades start to take shape in her body. I'm sure it wasn't the way she thought it would go down, but even still, even still she worships. Look at Luke 1:25. Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me, she said. And these days he has shown his favor and he's taken away my disgrace among the people. Notice the confidence in her response. John hasn't even been born yet, but she's so confident that he will be born and that her burden of shame will be lifted that she talks about it as if it's already happened. And I want that kind of confidence in the waiting, don't you? She's so confident. This is what I hope you're starting to see. Rather than this long season of waiting, leading them to wander away from God, they choose to worship that they didn't just worship after God answered their prayers, they worshiped while they waited for his answer. As they were waiting, God was working behind the scenes, bringing about not just new life in Elizabeth's womb, but new life that was for all people and the new era of the kingdom that her son would be the one to help usher in. When they couldn't see, when they didn't understand, they allowed what God had done and what he had promised to do to shape their vision of the kind of God that he was. A vision where, where his faithfulness, his beauty, his kindness, his steadfastness, his power, his grace was so compelling that they were willing to serve him and love him with their whole hearts while they waited that they didn't wander away, they worshiped. You know, the timing of this teaching, it came at a really interesting week for me. On Wednesday, Jordan and I had our first appointment with a fertility specialist because growing a family uh, is gonna look a little different for us, if Lord willing that happens because of our circumstances. So as I sat with Elizabeth's longing for a child, I couldn't help but come face to face with my own. I longed to have a baby, to watch Jordan become a father. We daydream about whether our kid will have his eyes or my nose, because I love my nose, and it's pretty straight. <laughs> his family's noses aren't. <laughs> Sorry, his brother's here too, love you. And the waiting is hard, it's hard. But what's interesting is that most of our lives are spent in the waiting. And whether it's for big stuff like waiting for a partner or a job or a promotion or healing or whether it's something smaller like for finals to be over, for winter break to come or the shoe to drop or for dinner to get delivered or just be done. A lot of life is spent in the waiting and the waiting is hard. I've heard it said that our truest and most personal longings are ultimately symptoms of our longing for God for God and his kingdom to come in its fullness. 
All of our other longings essentially just being longings on the surface pointing to our deepest and truest longing. Don't miss it. This is what they saw that we so often miss. More than anything that he can give, he himself is what we really want. He in and of himself is the one in whom we find our deepest longing satisfied. Love, unconditional grace, undeserved peace and justice, eternal. That's not just what he does, it's who he is. He is what our hearts long for more than anything. As Elise Fitzpatrick reminded us earlier, let us, let us be careful to not let our desire take the place of God in our lives. Friends, God is writing a bigger and a better story and he's inviting us to join in, to join in on that story, to be present and alert and prayerful in the waiting and to join in, to ready our hearts to run the race. It reminds me of Hebrews. In Hebrews, it talks about how as we run this race of life on earth, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, forerunners in the faith, people who have persevered and finished the race with their eyes fixed on Jesus, unwilling to settle, unwilling to, to, to get stuck in the stuff that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. But look at what Hebrews 11 says about these people in the great cloud of witness. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, all these people were still living by faith when they died, but they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Their longings weren't fully fulfilled in their lifetime. Even though Elizabeth and Zachariah got to have a baby, not all their longings were fulfilled. They didn't get to name their son, which was a really big deal. And he went on to live a pretty eccentric life that ended really tragically. But in our cloud of witnesses, there's Elizabeth and there's Zechariah. And as we run the race, we have people to look to like her. Stories of faith cheering us on as they pass the baton to us saying, don't give up. Keep running, keep hoping, show up anyway, show up when you don't want to, pray when you don't feel like it, keep going. Your suffering is worth it. Your hope is being fulfilled. He's working it all together for your good and for his glory. Don't let the waiting cause you to wander away from him. Keep going. I'm starting to see that one of the most beautiful parts of Advent is its invitation to acknowledge our deepest longings. We don't have to pretend like they don't exist. And we dare not believe that he doesn't care. Because even in the grand story, the cosmic uh, reality of the kingdom that's breaking in, God still has an eye on the individual. He still cares for the need of the common, ordinary couple. And so Advent is an invitation to lean in, to show up to our deepest longings and to hold them out before God to lay our longings before him while trusting that he will ultimately, 
in his appointed time, bring all things together, that, that he in all his sovereign wisdom will work it out together, again, for our good and for our glory, for his glory. Let's not settle in this season. Let's not forget the bigger story that God is writing. As I've been sitting with Elizabeth and Zachariah's story, it's like the Spirit's been holding up a mirror to my own life, asking me to consider how will you respond to the waiting? How will I, how will you respond when prayers that you've been praying go unanswered? Or even worse, you get the answer that you didn't want. Is there a clearer, more compelling vision of God that the waiting invites us to grab a hold of and hang on to for dear life. I think that there is. Friends, let's allow the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth to lead us into the more of God as we wait, to, to allow it to wake us up to the wonder of God's mystery and majesty and open up our hearts to receive the more that, that God has for us that not even their deepest desire could distract them from. The more of God that they saw as worthy to serve despite the shame and the pain that they endured. As we wait, we can let him into our longings. He wants to meet us there in all of our ordinary days of doing normal stuff. As we lay our lives open before him, staying steadfast in our devotion to him, it prepares the way for the divine to break in and move in ways that are better than we ever could have imagined. Let me pray as we move into the next. Jesus, I pray that right now by your spirit, all across this room, as maybe we're waking up to or paying attention to the deep longings that have yet to be satisfied, I, I pray that you would anchor us to you, Jesus the only hope that, that is strong enough for us to build our life on that will be unshakable and unwavering in, in every season. Would you anchor us to your love, Jesus? Give us eyes to see, eyes to see you as you really are. That you're beautiful and you're good and that you're with us to encourage us by your spirit right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.